Welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. In this episode, we talk to historian Brian Hanley about the new five-part documentary podcast, Dirty War in Dublin, written by Brian and produced by Kevin Brannigan. We discuss how the podcast came about and was developed, and look at the history of the Irish Civil War it covers and its wider context. Listeners will be familiar with Brian's work from previous episodes of our podcast. If you haven't already listened, you can hear Brian discuss the book he co-authored on the official IRA and the Workers' Party, The Lost Revolution, in episode 13. Uh, Reactions to Bloody Sunday in the Republic of Ireland in episode 35, which marked the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, and discussing his own political experience and background in episode 19. Dirty War in Dublin is available on Spotify, and you can find more of Brian's work on his website, brianhanleyhistory.wordpress.com. you find the Irish Left Archive at leftarchive.ie. The Irish Left Archive, in addition to this podcast, is a digital collection of documents related to Irish Left politics which at the time of recording encompasses just shy of a thousand periodicals, pamphlets, leaflets and posters from Irish left organisations, as well as details of the many organisations' publications on the left in Ireland in the 20th and 21st centuries. We welcome any suggestions, comments or document donations. You can contact us by email at contact at leftarchive.ie or via the website. So thank you very much to Brian for taking the time to talk to us, and thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us again on the podcast, Brian. To start, can you maybe tell us a bit about how the project of the podcast came about? Yeah, thanks for for having me on again. Um, basically, the idea initially was was Kevin Brannigan, who's um, a producer and director. He was involved in, I think he was director of Red Snaheran on TG Car, which oh. people will have seen recently. He was also producer of a documentary about Kevin Moore and that was an RT code breaker and, and he's been involved in, in stuff about Brian Kerr's teams and also actually about Sean Garland, a documentary a while back. So mm. he's kind of very experienced in, in the media area. And he'd pointed out to me that the Royal Irish Academy had offered some grants for Decade of Centenary's projects, a, a wide variety of projects. And he said, well, why don't you do a podcast? And I'd never really thought about the idea of a podcast before and I wasn't sure what it involved but we put in an application and we were lucky enough to to get some funding and we needed the funding because firstly he needed to get equipment himself and also then we wanted to include a kind of range of voices other historians Um, he also suggested that you know you have an actor voice certain things which I think work really well so we, we began the process last year and ultimately I did the research and wrote the scripts and narrated the, the podcast. But it was a new thing for me and it took a lot of mistakes before I got it right. I mean, the first, the first versions I did, I thought were fine. And when he played them back to me, I thought he was deliberately speeding them up. And, uh, really? and he said, <laughs> no, he said, you just speak that fast. And, and you couldn't have put it out, you know, it was just yeah. like, you know, so there is a particular way that you need to to slow down and you need to 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 and again you you stumble over your words when you're reading from a script and yeah. you don't you know you, you realize well i need to emphasize that or i need to go back and, and change that so it was constantly changing all the time but ultimately mm-hmm. yeah uh kevin and, and myself started that last the end of last summer i think right gosh the best part of 12 months did um did you have a sense in your head that it was going to be five episodes long or did that develop as the project developed? Yeah, it kind of developed as the, the project developed because we we were focusing it on Dublin. And I think Dublin's very important to the story, particular to the, particularly to a lot of the characters we were talking about. But some of the worst atrocities they were involved in occurred in Kerry. Um, and therefore we had to, talk about Bally CD and we were mm. kind of thinking how would we do that and how would we work that in yeah. and then I wanted to include we wanted to include the things that happened after the civil war because I think they're very important in, in terms of again what happens to these people how it went on how it was covered up so then ultimately we kind of it worked as five episodes now it could have maybe been longer it could have been shorter I don't know um, but Again, with a podcast, you kind of become aware that while there's some people who would listen 
anything for any length of time a lot of people don't like things that are much longer than a half an hour or 35 minutes or whatever 40 minutes so you've got to take account of the fact that you might feel you can go on forever but the listener isn't going to necessarily do that except except when we do it obviously then it's fine yes of course (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah that's interesting and was then a decision taken in relation to like i mean as you say bringing in an actor bringing in essentially sound effects and music and so forth. At what point of the process did they come into play? Well, they came in, I suppose, ne- near the end of the process. But firstly, the actor is a guy called Ben Waddle. And again, listening back, there were maybe other places where he could have been used more um, mm. and, and where quotes I gave, they would have sounded better had he been using them. I think he was really, really good. I think it did mm. add to it. Uh mm. Kevin Kerwin was the guy with the the kind of background music, um, yeah. which again does work. I mean, I I didn't know that 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 can be important in terms of a documentary that there is some kind of of background. So yeah. um, again, it was it was it was Kevin Brannigan who was suggesting those. And then when I was thinking of of people to speak to, I was thinking of various historians who'd written on different aspects of the War of Independence or the Civil War. Mm. or the aftermath and mm. we obviously had the um because the funding we were able to pay people you know and that's the point that people aren't you're not just asking someone to give their time and their research mm. and their expertise for nothing that you can actually say to them look there is there is payment for this and yeah and i think we got good people and i think they were able to again i mean people I suppose people might be aware may not be and i think it's 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 a, an advantage in a podcast if you're interviewed for a TV documentary or a radio documentary, mm. you're often interviewed for hours and they might mm-hmm. use 20 seconds. I mean, I was on yeah. one of the Portillo yeah. ones and, and I was interviewed <laughs> for about an hour, about loads of great stuff about Dublin Castle, British yeah. intelligence. And in yeah. the end, I featured for 10 seconds with him asking me, was Bloody Sunday a big event or something? And I was just going, yeah, <laughs> it was. I mean, and you just feel like an, an idiot. And But to be honest, a lot of people only see you. They don't even, they never yeah. even comment on what you said. But the point is that it's, you have no control a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no control over what what how what you say is presented or yeah. or what's used. Um, similarly, you know, you might try and write an opinion piece for a newspaper, but there's no guarantee it's going to be published or or mm. or that people will will necessarily come across. So a podcast you can bring a degree of kind of nuance and complexity. You can say quite a bit, mm. and you can you know, allow for maybe a few different opinions to be expressed mm. in the course of that. Um, so I think that was interesting as well to be able to do that um, about them, because maybe when we move on to talk about the things themselves, I can say what, mm. I, what I kind of wanted to do. Um, right, because you editorialised yourself, obviously. You had yeah, to you do, yeah. And, and then yeah. You, retrospectively, there's things that I, I forgot, even though I was, mm. you know, we're looking at the scripts dozens of times. I, I, there's things I should have put in or maybe changed or rephrased. And that's, you know, um, that's, that happens as well. It's interesting because when I, I heard it first, I came to a cold. I knew you'd done a podcast and it come up on Spotify and um, I knew what the subject was, obviously, from the, the bits and pieces. But I didn't read the subject headings. I just started the first one. So firstly, there's ambient aspects to it. And it actually sort of has, which adds, as you say, in a, in an interesting way, kind of adds a sort of depth to the process, which is, you know, it, which I thought was very interesting. And then the next thing is you've got interviews, and the next thing is you've got an actor as well. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a, this is a very different sort of approach. Obviously, say the stuff we do with the Left Archive, mm. but it was also very effective, I think, because it had a documentary feel to it. Um, and I, I was kind of wondering, like, what your take was in terms of like your sense of how this has landed with people beyond this in terms of uh, was it something that they expected or was it, have you had feedback that it was maybe more elaborate and more, you know, ambitious in a sense than people had expected? If you had that sort of feedback? Yeah, I, I don't know what people expected, I suppose. Yeah. So, you know, so far we've had very positive feedback mm. um, and generally, I mean, again, what I wanted people to, to take from it is firstly maybe things they didn't know you know mm. so this is something that you haven't heard before I mean obviously to some extent everybody who's who's 
interested in, in Irish history is a, yeah. aware of Michael Collins and the squad and, and some aspects of the war mm-hmm. in Dublin. And people who are interested in the Civil War will have heard of, of Ballycidi and maybe some of the, the unofficial killings and so on. But we wanted to not just go over old ground, but to tell the story, but also then to try and bring in a degree of, of complexity and a degree of, you know, um, to make people kind of think, oh, right, okay. So how did they do that? And then also do this. Um, And again, look, you know, you're not the font of all wisdom here. There's been loads and loads and loads of great research written over the years. Um, So on the the podcast, I thanked various historians whose work I use, people like Anne Dolan, who's one of the first to write about killing and, and Bloody Sunday, Herself and Will Murphy wrote a very good book about Michael Collins and, and the kind of the creation of the Michael Collins legend, even while he was alive. Mm. You've got people like Sam McGrath in, in military archives, who's, you know, the, the military service pensions collection has really opened up this huge vista of research where yeah. basically, I mean, people rightly at times complain about the Irish state and it's kind of the way it commemorates or, or doesn't commemorate mm. the revolution. But the this is is the they are to be credited with the fact that you, the projects like the Bureau of Military History and and then the the fact they've opened up the pension files they allow you to look at the Irish Revolution in a completely different way in terms of the involvement of people in terms of where they came from where they ended up you know all kinds of of little stories and mysteries I mean I've looked at crime as well but you know. You you can take almost any aspect of life and the pension files will give you something on that. Mm -hmm. And that's been really important for the kind of examining who these people were, who their victims were, you know, the kind of impact the the war was having on them. So there's there's lots of good stuff being written. And I wanted to acknowledge that I didn't, you know, come up with all this myself by a long shot. Mm -hmm. Secondly, there was other aspects of it that I wanted to bring in in terms of the kind of the culture of, of, I suppose, the, the IRA. Uh, and this is a, a thing again, that when we think about the war of independence, we kind of sometimes forget that this was a mass movement, that there were lots and lots of people involved and that a lot of the time IRA volunteers weren't engaged in armed struggle, that that was a process that evolved over three years four years and that actually a lot of the time most of them never got near a gun because the ira had very few guns comparatively in comparison to its size and therefore they were doing lots of other things which are part of this story but which it's much harder to kind of you know write songs about or visualize so you know who writes about stewarding rallies at mount joy Mm. or helping canvas for Sinn Féin in elections or even road trenching or yeah. intelligence gathering and stuff like that so there is a, a broader story i think you know john borganovo and and liz gillis and, and um john dorney hmm. discussed aspects of that which were very important as well that really you're looking when you look at the squad for example in dublin that's not what the ira were doing more generally most of the time and it's not what the dublin ira even were doing more generally right. so you are looking at a group of people who had a particular task and which is the one that stands out in terms of our kind of cultural memory of the War of Independence in Dublin, but which mm. was also relatively unusual. One thing we wanted to do was try and have a range of voices. And obviously yeah. you can't have, have everybody, but, you know, you got John Dorney, who's written on the Civil War in Dublin, probably the best mm. book on that. You have uh, Liz Gillis, who's written extensively on the IRA, both pre-truce and after the truce and on the Customs House and the the battle for yeah. Dublin in the early stages of the Civil War. You also have uh, John Borganovo, who's one of the editors of the Atlas of the Irish Revolution, but particularly has written um, a huge amount on Cork during the revolutionary period and, and the Civil War. Again, controversial one, the Dunmanway killings in 1922. I mean, the most sensible article on that, if people want to look for it, is yeah. by John Borganovo and Andy Bielenberg, which should be out there somewhere um, online. And then also, when we were looking at the aftermath, um, Katrina Goldstone had written the first article, really looking at the murders of Ernest Kahn and, and Goldberg. 
so she's very au fait with that whole area. So we wanted yeah, to talk to her. And also then Liam O'Callaghan has co-authored a book on capital punishment. Mm. And there's lots of executions in the 20s. And a lot of them involve kind of the fallout of the, the civil war. This is post-war. So Liam, again, was really excellent and all that. And then Mary McAuliffe has written a lot about gender violence, gender-based violence, but also about Kerry. So she, again, you you mentioned about this aspect of the civil war, we're becoming more and more aware of of sexual violence and gendered violence. And that's an aspect of what's going on in Kerry as well. So Mary had a lot to offer in terms of what she said, particularly in in the first episode. So we wanted to try and have, have a range of voices. And obviously then you have to edit those and you have to, you don't include everything they've said, but I think that was, I think it certainly added to it rather than just me interpreting whatever people had said. You kind of cast in a very bleak light, actually, the fact that uh, this stands out in the cultural memory, but it's almost as if it's a caricature of a caricature, the manner in which it stands out. I mean, how do you feel about that? In the, in the, I mean, you know, how do you present that in a sense in terms of the podcast? Uh, were you wary about that? Yeah, I suppose I was... <laughs> Look, people are going to take what they take from it. And, you know, there was a great, I mean, uh, I really liked the comments from the your cousin, the guy who who, who comments on the Cedar Lounge. Yeah. Uh, and oh, he yeah. was very complimentary about it. And he also said it's really, really depressing. And but also <laughs> at the same time, you know, you should listen to it. And I think, you know, you can look, you can listen to it and think, well, this really shows that there's no difference between the IRA in 1920 and the IRA in 1980. And you can take that in a positive, negative way. I mean, again, people will take different messages from that. I mean, I, it's not a moral um, kind of case against Mm -hmm. violence. I think violence was necessary in order to, to gain independence or what independence was gained. I think that there was absolutely no prospect of the British conceding anything without some form of armed struggle mm. by the IRA. But I also think that violence has an impact on its practitioners as well as its victims. Mm. And that a lot of the time that kind of isn't taught about because it's uncomfortable. And, mm. you know, I suppose the big questions then are raised about, well, did this mark people? Did they behave differently mm. in other ways? And was there any link between what people did in the War of Independence and the Civil War? Now, again, we're looking at a particular set of cases, so there's a much mm. wider story. I mean, you could look at the British government's use of, of death squads during the War of Independence and the kind of people involved in them, whether they be auxiliaries or whether they be intelligence mm. officers and kind of their background, which I in almost all cases, I suspect, would have been men who'd been in the in, in the Great War. So that, you know, yeah. might say something about them. You also then look at, at the, the dead squads in Belfast, the RIC and others, who, again, a substantial number will probably have been war veterans, but, but not all of them. So there is this kind of subterranean type of violence, as well as the, you know, what you might consider more clear-cut ambushes in the countryside yeah. or gun battles and so on. Um, and then there is that question of, again, a lot of people, even a lot of soldiers, aren't really able to kill at close quarters or they find it very, very difficult. Um, and some people are able to do it and are mm. able to do it repeatedly. So mm. I mean, it's probably above my pay grade to get into the what this says about people's makeup. But yeah. I think in terms of history, it's important when we look at the War of Independence, Civil War, that whole period, the Great War as well, and the aftermath that you see right across Europe ex-servicemen involved in all these conflicts um, as paramilitaries or sometimes as victims yeah. on all sides. Um, yeah. And therefore, does this mark a particular type of impact in terms of conflict? Because certainly during the Civil War, most of the very bad things done by the free state in terms of, of the unofficial or the, the off the books, as people have used the term from on the internet about this, those killings tended to be carried out by a small group of men and all those men, as far as I can see, were IRA veterans. And a lot of them were people who, as Todd Andrews said, you know, in his book about Ballyseedy, these were people who every IRA man would have been urged to emulate previously, right. that these were not 
These were not Trusselliers. They were not Johnny Come Latelys. They were not, you know, a kind of caricature of this kind of free state counter-revolutionary reactionary who decides, yeah. you know, that I really want to kill anti-treatyites. These yeah. were men who had taken it to the British, who had been at the cutting edge of the IRA's war. And how within a year are they doing these things? And I don't have the, the complete answer for that, but I think it is something to consider in terms of how we look at the Civil yeah. War. And that's why in, in the first episode, we looked at O'Daly. I want yeah. people to realise Paddy O'Daly joins the IRB in 1907. Yeah. Paddy O'Daly fights in the Easter Rising. Paddy mm. O'Daly does his jail time. He organizes escapes. So this is the guy who does Bally CD. You know, yeah. so so why does he how does he manage to make that leap? And did his experience in, in the War of Independence make him more likely mm. to do those things? Again, that's that's a wider question, but I think it's it's one that you can kind of think about. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, in a sense, like, and this is, I guess we're jumping around a little bit. I mean, there's also the class aspect of it, but it doesn't seem to be as strong a determinant as one might imagine in some respects. I mean, there are, there were different class bases to the anti-treaty IRA and to the pro-treaty IRA, but you can't, you know, in the course of the podcast, like there's so many different elements that are, that come into play, like there's gendered violence and harassment and, and serious violence. I mean, desperate stuff. And then you also have um, anti-Semitic, you know, what appears just simply to be anti-Semitic attacks. And all these things are thrown in. And yet there doesn't seem to be almost a thread that pulls all of these things completely together. It is almost like these are men who have a capacity for violence and the ability to exercise it and a sanction from the state, though that's another area that sounds, you know, that seems interesting to get into, but at least the sense in their own heads, there's, they have, the state is willing to allow them a certain degree of latitude in relation to this and they can move forward or backwards on that as they see fit within certain prescribed limits and they then choose to do so. And I'm just wondering like how, were you able to find a narrative thread which pulls all those elements together into something that says, yes, OK, there is an explanation for this? Or did you find yourself at the end of the process saying, well, actually, you know, it's, there's too much in there almost? Well, I mean, I think ultimately the the free state government uh, bears responsibility for the murder gang's activities because they knew about them. Hmm. Um, they were well aware who was doing what. Um, again, I think we... We mentioned that, you know, Bobby Bonfield, who is an IRA volunteer who, who was killed by the murder gang, was was abducted in the view of W.T. Cosgrave yeah. um, at Easter 1923. So Cosgrave knew well yeah. when Bonfield's body turned up um, the next day what the had happened to him. You know, so, yeah, I mean, so there's there's no doubt they were aware of it and they let it happen. And I think it, perform- it, it played a role in, as far as they could see, terrorising the anti-treatyites. In the second kind of wave of killings in Dublin in 1923, they do seem to be targeting active mm-hmm. IRA members. But a point is made by John Dorney um, as well, though, that most of the victims of the murder gang were not really, inverted commas, important people. Um, they mm-hmm. were obviously important people um, to, to themselves and the people who yeah, love them, but, family, yeah. but they were not targeting IRA leaders a lot of the time. And in fact, yeah. a lot of the IRA leadership who were captured um, like Ernie O'Malley and Oscar Trainer and so on were not mm. executed, you know. Um, even the the legal executions of 81 Republicans, the vast majority of them were ordinary IRA volunteers who were mostly being executed for very, very minor things like possession yeah. of arms or, yeah. you know, and so on. So the, the murder gang's activities, on the one hand, are certainly tacitly endorsed by the government and by the state, and they know they're doing them. And that it's their men who are carrying out these and they lie about it. You know, Richard Mulcahy yeah. says we've no idea what's happening. You know, Kevin O'Higgins says we've no idea what's happening. On the other hand, the murder gang do things a lot of the time, which I feel has a personal aspect to it, that there is an element of revenge rather than strategy at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that mm-hmm. that speaks to a kind of gang mentality that's been forged through them coming through a long period of being very close to each other during the war of independence and being very loyal to each other. And obviously feeling that if anything happens to one of them, they have to hit back. Um, yeah. So 
you see in a lot of their killings, like, for example, the targeting of Noel Lamas. I, I don't think the Free State Cabinet thought in 1923 that we should kill this guy now he's mm. back in Dublin. I don't think he was important enough for them to think about him in that way. Um, mm. But actually, the murder gang, as far as we can see, blamed him for the death of two officers at the start of the Civil War, and they were kind of determined to get him, you know, and and that caused a sensation because the war was over and it led to a lot of, of, of public kind of concern about what was going on. And I think that, you know, is part of the reason why this is wound down as well. But during the Civil War itself, the, the Free State government are, are quite happy to use both legal and illegal terror to, mm. to defeat the anti-treaty IRA. Um, again, in Kerry, you could argue certainly that the retaliations for at Bally City and so on, are on such a scale that it is designed to try and, and completely destroy the morale of, of the right. IRA and Kerry. There's a wider question about whether or not it does that, obviously. And, mm. and there's a wider mm. question about, I mean, if you look at the legal executions, there's lots of them in places where there wasn't a whole lot going on anyway, you know, mm. and, and there's less of them in, in, in places where there was quite a lot of IRA activity. But certainly, I think, it added a dimension to the government's efforts to crush the IRA. And I suppose the other wider political question then is that why isn't there more of a, a pushback? Because the British wouldn't have been allowed to do this. Yeah. Um, there would so have been why? Both, why? well, hugely popular and an international revulsion had the British government been doing this in Ireland. Mm. Why? Because even the free state had a degree of legitimacy that the British didn't. And right. a lot of the population were not happy with the civil war. They wanted to stay out of it. So yeah. they don't like all this stuff, but they just want it to end. And the anti-treatyites aren't able to mobilize enough popular kind of um, anger to make this as big a deal as it should have been. So, you know, during the War of Independence, when there's executions at Mountjoy and so mm. on, there's half-day strikes, general strikes in Dublin. There's thousands of people outside Mountjoy and demonstrating. And that really doesn't happen in the Civil War, in part because the, the state carries out these executions very quickly and so on, doesn't mm. have a, a big lead up, but also because there isn't that degree of popular support for republicanism that could mobilize. One thing that struck me was that about the murder gang is that a lot of Republicans are aware of the murder gang. There was a murder gang. Yeah. But the murder gang aren't notorious. And that within 20 years, almost all these men live out their lives in peace. Um, they're by the 1950s, and this was something that we only kind of discovered near the end, so we didn't really talk as much as, as mm. we should have. There's You go to newspapers in the 1950s, and there's ceremonies in Dublin where the Dublin Active Service Unit of the IRA gets certificates of service and so mm. on. And the anti-treatyites are there, and the pro-treatyites are there, and the murder gang are all there, and they're all in the same room, you know? Mm. And you think... That's remarkable in many ways. Also, when Paddy O'Daly, a portrait of O'Daly is presented to the what's now the Hugh Lane Gallery mm. in 1955, and there's mm. a big ceremony, it's in the papers, and Richard Mulcahy presents the portrait and so on. There's no, you know, there's no protest. There's nobody saying, well, should we be putting this, a portrait of this man in a public place? So Republicans remember that the, the terror in kind of abstract. Mm. Or they blame it all on very obvious people like Cosgrave, O'Higgins, and so on, mm. which is legitimate in one mm. way. But there's no demonization of the Joe Dolans or the the uh, the Frank Bolsters or the Paddy O'Dalys even. I mean, I've looked at Republican pamphlets about Ballyseedy, yeah. and a lot of the time they don't even really mention the Dublin Guards. You know, they just talk about the Free State Army. But I think you can't understand what was going on without seeing this as a very particular group within the free state apparatus and who have a very particular history. Mm. And therefore, it's interesting that they were not really demonized. In 1978, um, Anvil Press published mm. um, The Singing Flame, Ernie O'Malley's yeah. Civil War uh, memoir. And on the back of the Singing Flame, there is an endorsement. You know, I think it says something like, very important work of history, David Nelligan. Yeah. So David Nelligan, who singles out the prisoners at Ballyseedy for their deaths, yeah. who's involved in torturing and killing prisoners in Kerry, who's later head of, of Special Branch, he's on the back of Ernie O'Malley's book. Now, O'Malley's long dead by this stage, but the point is that no, there isn't, these people are not recalled in the way that you would might imagine in the years after the Civil War, that there is an awareness of what they did 
but it never becomes part of the popular consciousness, I don't think. And that's why people are still surprised by, this is again the point where you go from the academic or the person who's really, really interested in history, mm. who, who knows the ins and outs of all this and the wider public. The wider public generally still don't know a lot of what happened in the Civil War. And they certainly don't know that a lot of it was done by the same guys who in Neil Jordan's movie are these kind of young kids yeah. who, who take on the, the might of the British Empire. Do you think, I mean, this is a, a stray thought, but do you think like the fact that De Valeria and Fianna Fáil came in to power and in a sense had a hegemonic control, not entirely, through the 30s, most of the 40s, 50s, in some ways softened maybe responses that otherwise might have been more hard-edged, maybe simply because Fianna Fáil had itself to compromise with certain realities, partition and so on and so forth? Or do you think, because it's very hard to understand how those people all sat down together in the same dining room in the late nineteen, in the mid to late nineteen fifties, and weren't tearing chunks out of each other. Yeah, and weren't killing each other. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things which I think, and I haven't got the answer to that in any kind of coherent way. But it is remarkable that Fianna Fáil did not seek revenge. I mean, this is the the significant thing about yeah. Fianna Fáil coming to power in nineteen thirty two. They ultimately sacked O'Duffy because he was plotting against the government. Um, yeah as Garda Commissioner, and they ultimately sacked David Nelligan as head of Special Branch because he was passing on secret information to, to yeah. Patrick Hogan to write his book about communism and, and also undermining the government's authority within the Garda. But they just yeah. sacked him. Didn't do yeah. anything else to him. Um, they didn't carry out a wholesale purge of the civil service or the Garda mm. or the army. They didn't pursue... Now, again, I think, as, as we mentioned, a lot of the documentation had been destroyed by Cumann and Gale uh, uh, before they left power on the basis, obviously, they didn't want Fianna Fáil to know. Yeah, you mentioned the that. Yeah, of what yeah. done. But they'd yeah. have known a lot anyway. You know, they'd have known mm. quite a bit. The guys in Fianna Fáil, like Tom Derrick, who lost an eye when he was tortured in, in Oriel House, he'd have mm. known who his torturers were, you know. Yeah. And and <laughs> a lot of the, the uh, you know, Sean Lamass would have had a fair idea who the men involved in his brother's murder were. Mm. But they did not pursue, pursue a policy of, of retribution. They mm. did rhetorically. I mean, they called each other a lot of names for a long time. But, you know, that's not the same at all as, yeah. you know, as a, as a purge or as yeah. people in jail. So what they didn't have, I suppose, and, and you can maybe, it's very different in many ways to Spain. But, you know, the, now you're saying that in, in the years after democracy in Spain, they basically played down the atrocities of the civil war because society had to get on with it while all these mm. people were still alive. And then mm. there's an argument that they played down the crimes of fascism as a result. Yeah. But certainly, even though every Republican would have known about the 77, even though it was 81 maybe, um, and, and had an idea of the murder gang and so on, mm. they didn't seek these people out. They didn't have war crimes tribunals. Yeah. They didn't put people on trial. They didn't demand that people give their... You know, yeah present to the public their reasons for doing these things. And they effectively let it go, I suppose, in a way that then you also have another question, which is, are combatants capable of a great deal more understanding of their enemy than, than ordinary people are, are victims? Because right. it strikes me that you do find in a lot of situations where people who fight, usually men, but, but now men and women, mm. who fight against each other can meet then years later mm. and discuss this that this is, mm. you know, a phenomenon in every war. Veterans of different conflicts meet and talk about how they were once enemies or, and such and yeah. such. And that even in the Civil War, whereas the cliche is the Civil War divided Ireland for 100 years, everybody hated each other, la, la, la. Right. A lot of people weren't involved in it anyway. Exactly. But, but yeah. also, yeah. the combatants, some of them ended up in the Defence Forces during the emergency together. Some of them, you know, were maybe closely related anyway and therefore there is a degree of getting on with it by the 50s that allows them to be in the same room you know when you think how could you how could you even stand to be near the people who carried out Bally City um, yeah. and that's a big question I suppose um, mm -hmm. but it is fascinating that you don't have that kind of public shaming in the way that again I suppose you know 100 years on 
a lot of people will become far more aware of the the individuals involved in particular acts than maybe they were um, outside of a, a few people in, in the 30s. And I guess possibly, and I mean, you do, you do bring this to the fore in the podcast, maybe the fact that these guys have been there at the hard end in the struggle against the British. In some ways, it was perhaps it was difficult to detach them from that. Yeah, I think and, it is. And maybe people didn't want to. Maybe people just didn't want to know about it, as you say. Like, I think there is there is a particular thing which, again, is there is an element of truth to this, obviously, um, but it's also a bit more nuanced in that Republicans, I think, are very fixated on, say, the statistic that you know. 50% of the Free State Army were ex-British soldiers. Something. Mm. I don't know if it was 50%, but, but a big yeah. chunk of them were. Yeah. And as someone said to me, when I first heard that, I imagined black and tans in Free State uniform going around killing people. I mean, you think they're British, but of course, what they are are Irish men who'd been in the British Army, usually in the Great War, who were 10 a penny in every town in Ireland, in Port Leash, in Clonmel, in Tralee, in inner city Dublin, Every, you know, there were thousands of ex-servicemen. So these are kind of mostly, now, politically, they might not be in any way sympathetic to the IRA, of course. Some mm. of them might want to fight the IRA. But a lot of them are soldiers who are unemployed in 1922, and there's a new army that's prepared to give them a job. Yeah. They are not in the main the people who are doing these things. They are not in the main the ones responsible for the worst atrocities. Neither are the kids from the generally the kind of people who join the Free State Army, if they're not British Army veterans, are mm. young fellas from the former garrison towns um, who the IRA tend to look down on quite a bit. Um, so they're like the, the, the usual army recruit in every society at the time. And they don't do too much of this either. What they tend to do is shoot each other quite a bit because the Free State Army suffers a lot of killings caused by accidents and friendly right. fire and so on. Yeah, and then yeah. you have a core who'd been in the IRA, who were a substantial amount of people who were, who were really crucial in the early stages of the Civil War, actually. I think as John Dorney explains again, you know, in Dublin and so on in 1922, it's really the ex-squad element and the wider ex-Dublin active service unit who are key to the Free State holding Dublin and then to the landings in Kerry and Cork and elsewhere. Mm. They really are the backbone of the Free State forces. They're the toughest mm. fighters. And... um. I think that's it's difficult for people and it's probably even difficult for Republicans in the 1920s to to hate some of them in the same way. Now, you would think shouldn't be, but it, it I think it's much easier to see the ex-British soldier as the demon in all this yeah. um, rather than some guy who'd actually been involved in, in trying to rescue Sean McKeown from Mount Joy or in all kinds of ambushes and then Bloody Sunday in Dublin and the Custom House and so on. And that's mm. that, I think, is just a reality. It, it's problematic and it makes you think about what did these guys believe in in the first place? And again, what what does yeah. a culture of high tension, exposure to violence, getting used to killing, what does it do in terms of your own kind of makeup? I'd mentioned class before. I mean, one of the things that struck me as interesting about this is the role the Labour Party took in terms of highlighting this. And was that purely an oppositional aspect or was that ideological, do you think? I mean, was it that it had a profound problem and no needs about this? Or, or perhaps it was a mixture of both? Yeah, well, I think they did have a problem with it because obviously the Labour Party had, had entered Leinster House eventually in September 1922. And mm. as a result, Republicans saw them propping up the free state, basically. Um, the Labour Party saw itself as the opposition, so it questioned all the various um, draconian kind of legislation and repressive legislation. But they also asked questions all the time about the murder gang, and they said, we don't believe, you know, when you say mm. that this has nothing to do with you, we don't believe it. So they did keep these things in the public eye. Um mm was never you know it was always rhetorical opposition really and 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 that's significant too in that it did mean that most of these killings were marked by questions you know that somebody right. said well who's doing these things um and yeah. the states and we've no idea who's doing them you know it's nothing to do with us um but the labor party were 
in opposition and they did ask questions as did you know some independents obviously uh, mm. ultimately as uh, as well um the wider role of, of labor in in the whole question is obviously i think another day's work was there any sense on the side of the state itself or the government itself i mean it seems to have been actually utterly shameless in relation to this that it had no qualms whatsoever or very few only when it was caught out or there's a sense it was being caught out so this wasn't policy per se it was more a sense of letting a dog off a leash i think in part the policy is we're going to win this war as quickly as possible and we're Mm. prepared to do anything to do that and they're kind of guided by a sense that they've got to beat the ira and Mm. and they they're going to use terror to do that Mm. then i also think that you have within the state all kinds of factions and bodies that are acting sometimes autonomously or semi-autonomously. And certainly I think the group, a lot of them around the murder gang, um, they are guided sometimes less by strategy than by revenge Mm. or by, you know, a desire to hit back and to show that they're not going to be cowed in any way by the IRA, sometimes by a sense as well of superiority, um, you know, that that they had been the elite of the IRA, that they had been Collins' men, and that basically the cheek of some of these youngsters to think that they could, you know, claim to be Republicans. I think that's a factor too. Um, but it becomes problematic once the civil war is over and once it's clear the public wants the killing to stop. Mm. And that includes the state killing. Mm. And that then you have, I think what we, we look at in episode four, which is the... The, the fact that ultimately the state does prosecute, you know, one um, yeah. intelligence officer for, for one for one murder and also an army officer for another murder in Kerry. Yeah. And those people are really scapegoats, but it's also a kind of a sign that, you know, you've got to you've got to bring this to an end now. Yeah. And that was quite effective as well. It did seem to kind of tamp everything down. Well, it, it does. Degree. Yeah. And I think also they... A lot of them are involved in, in kind of the abortive army mutiny and mm. then they're pensioned off. And I think they, they start to, I mean, it would be, I think, interesting to follow the careers of all the people involved and to look at it in more detail, which you could you could do, and, and to examine where they end up in the 30s and 40s and 50s mm. and, and to look at the, the people higher up the kind of chain as well, people like Joe McGrath, the, the Minister for Labour, um, and to kind of, see you know certainly there's a few of them charlie dalton would be the standout example who suffer major mm. mental trauma and who mm. do end up in and out of grand gorman and and so on in in the 30s who are affected in, in a lot of ways by this and, and there's others who aren't don't seem to be that affected so i think you could follow on and see where these people end up but they do they are brought to heel and in another case case of of, of james conroy he because what he's wanted for the murders he's wanted for, he leaves the country for a while, comes back and then, then goes away again. But he gets away with that too, really, because of, of his connections. So it's, I mean, there's a lot of killing after the Civil War in, 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 in the Free State. There's lots of, of armed crime. There's lots of stuff going on. So it isn't just these guys, but I think mm. that would give you an indication of how kind of it takes a while for things to settle down. Ultimately, they don't really settle down until the mid-1930s, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, like, the fact that they moved away from... The fact the state was able to impose its will over the military in the state, and perhaps this group of all groups, is quite an interesting dynamic in and of itself. And do you think that was a combination of war weariness, or just, as you say, the civilian leadership were willing to impose their will, come what may? Yeah, I think it was... You know, there's a kind of a, a sanctification of, of the the free state government as the saviors of Irish democracy and all this mm. stuff, which is which is <laughs> mostly rubbish and certainly yeah. very kind of gilded anyway yeah. in terms of what they've done. But I think they did want, firstly, the general, the population wanted an end to conflict. Yeah. Um, and it was unsustainable to have um, a huge army and a huge military by the mid-1920s. Yeah. The, the murder guy and co 
felt they had unfinished business and that unfinished business was the six counties among other things and they also had jobs they were all officers so you know mm. they're all army officers and now, now they're being told they're going to be unemployed so there's obviously self-interest as well as but Collins mission has been unfulfilled mm. the free state government had no intention of fulfilling Collins's mission by 1925 uh, certainly that becomes clear so they want to wind down the army potentially are very dangerous and they want to get to grips with that. They have the support of people like Richard Mulcahy, who's, you know, and senior army officers who also want to, to basically uh, bring the army under control and the murder gang in, in some way are rivals to that group. Mm. So they were able to use the differences within, I mean, it's a very kind of complicated, messy business, but they do use the, the differences within the, the various groups within the army to try and bring them to heel. Mm. And then in 1932, some of them think about keep holding on to power to stop Fianna Fáil coming in. So again, they're, they're uh, you know, qualified Democrats in many ways. And then by the by 1933, a whole section of the Cumann elite are attracted to fascism because they're so unhappy with the Irish electorate for electing Fianna Fáil. So it yeah. is, it's, 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 a, it's a more complicated business than, than the, some of the more sim, simplistic accounts might make out. Mm. But I think they are ultimately sidelined. Now, they're not punished. And again, you know, the, 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 the mutinies, Irish solution to an Irish problem, they want to overthrow the state, they don't get to do it. So we just, you know, let them retire and give them their pensions, you know, um, whereas in other places, they'd obviously been shot or at least put in jail. Um, but I suppose that points again, okay, to the disappointments of the revolutionary movement and of that section of the revolutionary movement who took Colin seriously and who mm. believed that they were still carrying on the work of the IRA, even though they were on the, the pro-treaty side. And yeah. certainly some of them do sincerely believe that, and a lot of the people who follow them sincerely believe that as well. And yet it just dissipates. I mean, politically it seems to dissipate. It doesn't really become a very strong strand inside what eventually becomes Fianna Gael. It's, they don't have a rapprochement with Fianna Foil as such. I suppose there's, there's a personal kind of, in some ways, a lot of them get jobs in the the various, you know, I think Joe McGrath has the, the sweepstakes and so on. And, and you mm. get a lot of anti-treatyites and pro-treatyites ended up working in these bodies. Um, but I suppose you see an echo of it in, in the blue shirt era in that section of Fine Gael. Mm. Whereas one person who's kind of outside this is Ono Duffy, who's not really implicated in the civil war in any very bad things much at yeah. all, you know? Yeah. And, and who's then in the 20s, Garda commissioner, and moves further and further to the right mm. as he's carried a commissioner, but he's not really, he's not involved in, in the murder gang stuff. He, by 1932-33, is seeing himself as the upholding the heritage of Collins. So a lot of the blue shirt element, firstly, would have been IRA veterans from the War of Independence. They would have, again, you know, seen part of their mission as this idea of some kind of united Ireland. So there's an echo of that in their rhetoric and in the kind of way they present themselves within Common the Gale and there's tension between then the Commonwealth element and between the ex-unionists who are beginning to come in between the ex-home rulers who come in so it's a coalition that this element are ultimately very important initially and then yeah. kind of sidelined as well but again that's a bigger um, question. Another thought that comes to mind is that for Republicans those who took the losing side in the Civil War the 20s weren't great in Ireland in terms of getting employment and state structures and so forth. They're very sharply sidelined out, really, until, I guess, until Fianna Fáil came to power. Yeah, I mean, they're, firstly, they don't get pensions, obviously. Um, yeah. it's, it's Fianna Fáil introduce pensions for those on the anti-treaty side. Mm. Um, but also there's discrimination in terms of employment um, and state employment, particularly in, in civil service against yeah. anti-treatyites um, up till Fianna Fáil come to power. So lots of people leave. Um, and lots of people leave anyway. I mean, you know, the 20s are bleak and lots of people are leaving the, the free state. And I think, you know, somebody said to me that actually they've found a lot of pro-treatyites leave as well. But certainly the anti-treatyites mm. are made aware they're the losers and oh, yeah. are going to be, if they're still active in politics, are subject to all kinds of, of, of state uh, harassment and repression. So, you know, the... The memory of the murder gang also lingers on because there's always a feeling that the, the state might return to these type of things if if it's challenged, um, even though a lot of the personnel were gone by the mid-20s. 
I'm curious, were there areas that you didn't get to address? As you were saying before, there's things that there wasn't time constraints and stuff, but was there stuff looking back, uh, thoughts and concepts and what have you, where you said, you know, that would have been an interesting fit or? I suppose I, I took it for granted that a lot of the listenership are going to be in favour of the War of Independence. So I didn't really stress British violence. Um, Only in the final episode, I kind of talked Mm. about the threat of war, um, which was held over the the both sides in in the Civil War, the threat of Mm. British re-intervention and so on. We didn't talk about Northern Ireland to a huge extent, so I wasn't talking about what was going on on there. Um, Mm. And I think, you know, I believe that the War of Independence was justified and that, you know, and this is, and I suppose this is the difficult thing that, you know, mm. the things that the squad did in Dublin, I think, did play a big role in contesting Dublin, in showing yeah. the world that the capital of Ireland was not under the control of, of the British crown anymore. So if you believe whether you, you think it was independence or not, but you certainly, certainly what happened in 1922 meant something. Mm. That withdrawal wasn't possible really without them. And if you were a, a pro-treatyite and if you laud the free state for its achievement in, mm. you know, if you want to call it secure and democracy, that wasn't possible without them either. So yeah. I want people to realize, right, you can't kind of hold your nose and say, these people are animals, these people are terrible. These people are the kind of people that actually most armies have and that do things in war that ultimately, you know, people, ultimately, I think most people in 1923 agreed to some extent with the achievement of partial independence. Um, even the anti-treatyites, the thinking mm. ones recognised that something had changed, which is why De Valera and Aiken and so on say, like, we can't just say it is just the same as the British. It's not, yeah. quite clearly. Um, yeah. So that doesn't happen without them. Mm. But then is there any lessons to be learned from the whole culture of the, the, the phrases used by, by Frank Gallagher um, in the 30s when he writes about them, the men who worship the gun. Basically, the squad are glorified and they are held up. And it's kind of a folksy version, as John Dorney says, ultimately mm. a version with the blood almost taken out. It, it's Vinnie Byrne in the Ireland of television history saying, oh, I said to him, say his prayers, and then I plugged him. And it's kind of like, yeah, yeah. okay, Vinny, that, yeah. Without people thinking, well, does this have any effect on Vinny? And does it have any effect on what happens a year later? And how did they get to this point, you know? Yeah. So I think that aspect of it, you know, that probably comes out a lot, whereas mm. there's broader historical aspects that don't get the same depth that they might if you had more time and so on. In relation to the North, how does this play out in relation to the North? Do you have any thoughts on that? And also, is there aspects of the mythos around Collins where the activities of this group function, how they function in relation to that subsequently, in terms of either enhancing it or perhaps casting it in very, very different light? Yeah, I think, I mean, Collins is dead before... Mm some of the worst atrocities happen. And I think his his fans then ultimately absolve him of any responsibility. Mm. I think John Borganova makes the case and and I think he's right that Collins creates this group. He fosters a culture of personal loyalty and they don't behave in the way that, you know, in theory. I mean, a lot of this stuff is in theory, obviously, you know, mm. but, but but they they behave very much as an elite. And they get away with a lot because they're Collins men and they're quite clearly already on a slippery slope prior to the truce and certainly during the truce. So I think Collins does bear responsibility. I think Collins was ruthless and he was also pragmatic. And I think he probably was enough of a politician to realise that the public wouldn't accept some things. But during the Civil War, I think he'd have certainly by August, I think he's he's going to fight it as hard as he needs to fight it. And so I don't think he can be, you know, you can't just say these are these are just amazingly almost all his closest people are involved in in civil war mm-hmm. atrocities, but he has no responsibility for that. I think that there is a connection with Collins and with this kind of culture 
uh, that he that he fosters. But there's also a genuine politics here in that these guys did think they were soldiers of the Republic and they did think that, you know, United Ireland was their ultimate aim and they are mm. angry over partition. And, and you have the people like Paddy Mulroe has written really well about this mm. and Kieran Glennon about Belfast as well. Mm. During the early months yeah. of 1922, the pro-treaty side, certainly the militarists, are heavily involved in fighting and attempts to disrupt, if not overthrow, the new Northern Ireland state. Hmm. large parts of the IRA along the border and within the six counties are pro-treaty and are at the same time quite obviously engaged in armed activities. And that's why during the Civil War, you have a substantial number of Free State soldiers who are from the North, both ex-IRA and then the Free State Army recruits in the North. Anyway, so a lot of ordinary Catholics join up. So, I mean, very crudely, if a Kerry IRA man heard a Belfast accent in 1923, he'd be hiding because it was probably a free state right. soldier, you know. Right. Now that's yeah, not, yeah. you know, there's Kerry yeah. IRA men up in Donegal and, and there's there's anti-treatyites mm. in Belfast too. But certainly it's it's so confused at the time that a lot of Northern nationalists certainly did firstly believe, well, at least a free state is a state and it might help us. So they're not mm. intrinsically opposed to the free state as mm. a state. Also then the, the, the military men believe, well, the Michael Collins, the Richard Mulcahy's, the Sean McKeown's, the Michael Brennan's, all these guys, they want to help us and they are they helping us. us so, yeah. you know, these other guys who are talking about like republics and so on, some of that's maybe a little bit abstract now that I've got to be specials, you know, right, yeah. on my road. So there is also these complexities, which I think a lot of Republicans, you know, they don't forget it in the 30s. There's, I think there's a significant yeah. bitterness in the 30s among Southern Republicans at the Northern as they mm. see it betrayal of them in 1922 but ultimately over the years that disappears particularly as as republicanism becomes much more a northern phenomenon mm. so today people would again still be surprised you know that actually in 1922 you could be a pro-treaty and be from belfast and that you yeah. could even end up in free state uniform some people are disappointed with that some people aren't i mean again mm. dan mckenna is the commander of the ira in county Derry, ultimately becomes chief of staff of of the irish army uh, in the 40s, him and a substantial number of his men went south, including uh, Johnny Hawhey, who becomes an officer in the Free State Army and has yeah. a famous son. Well, so yeah. that's the complexity. And I think Collins's men do believe we're the ones who are going to start our partition. Yeah. You know, once we've beaten you guys. Now, this might seem counterintuitive. You know, mm. we've got to beat the IRA. Then we're going to start out the Brits. But yeah. basically, I think that's what they thought. And right. they believed, you know, that we'll crush this lot, we'll reorganize, we'll become a very effective army. Collins's ideas will be the ideas of our new state. And then we'll, we'll bring about a United Ireland. And, and while that might again seem very, you know, illusory now, yeah. you could believe it, I think, in the early 20s. And you, you probably wanted to believe, because again, how could you justify what you were yeah. doing unless you thought there was a higher purpose and that that purpose was going to be served ultimately by you and, and your army. Yeah, which is an interesting twist on the whole point about Collins's, well, apportioning blame or responsibility as you see fit. But in terms of Collins then becomes, as he has subsequently, something everybody maps and projects. Almost what they want to onto him. I mean, he's the great anti-partitionist. He's also founder of the state and, you know, supposedly supporter of democracy and and then the person who in some ways set the thing in train it, it, it's fascinating to see that and see how this group of people who are so intrinsically linked to him at the same time they embody all the problems and the complexities and the contradictions of what he was about yeah and and the thing is that almost everybody still wants Collins uh, not yeah. everybody but but you know almost every major political force, cultural force in nationalist Ireland wants to have Michael Collins as some kind of, you know, um, iconic figure. And I think that's problematic. And I think, you know, we, we, we can talk a lot more about the politics of the revolution and, and what was necessary and what it involved and, and why we commemorate some things and not others. But I do think we need to, we need to talk about Collins too. And, and we need to be prepared to be um, critical, not just say Collins was a traitor, he shouldn't have signed the treaty, etc. etc. That's mm. you know, you know, you've got to go beyond that, yeah. you've got to come up with better reasons than that for for 
a critique for, the, for critiquing him. But you've also got to look, I think, at why people followed them and why, again, that culture of, well, if it's good enough for Collins, it's good enough for me. You know, that mm. kind of permeates republicanism in many ways as well. You know, that you, you follow the leader that you trust and you trust the people who do the business. You know, yeah. if you've killed a few people, then you're intrinsically a better Republican than a person who's never done it. You know, in some yeah. cultures, which yeah. also is, is is in popular culture, the kind of uh, popular kind of adulation of special forces that you get, and and you even have you know the fitness kind of shows, you know, and, and mm. it's 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 basically that you're, you're if you can do a thousand sit-ups or drink mm. your own piss like Bear Grylls or somebody up the mountains that that yeah. qualifies you for the SAS or, or whatever. Yeah. What qualifies you for them is your willingness to kill people far more than most soldiers actually are, are certainly most civilians, you know? So let's be honest about that as well. They're elite because they're, they're killers more than the lads who are, you know, working in the canteen or the transport section are. Um, yeah. And that's, a phenomenon within the IRA and the War of Independence as well. I mean, the, the squad were asked to sign up and according to a lot of accounts, some people said, no, I can't sign up for it. Again, what, I mean, I don't know whether this is civil war kind of uh, politicking, but some of the accounts say Oscar Trainer said he couldn't do it, so he stepped back. Now, he becomes commander of the IRA in Dublin and commander of the anti-treaty IRA, but he didn't feel that he would be the person for shooting somebody in their bed, you know? So that's said something about different aspects of, you know, and the people who were in the GPO, some of them thought, well, that's one kind of warfare, but mm. I'm not prepared to do this other kind of stuff. You know, it doesn't mean somebody shouldn't do it, of course. Then we're into, then we're getting into this. Well, what about the people who are sitting at computers directing drones over yeah. Afghanistan? What about aerial warfare? What about the atomic bomb? Of course, yeah. you're into lots of moral questions about violence is shooting a policeman in Dublin any worse than that. Of course it's not, but I think certainly it affects the people who do it. And mm. maybe some of the violence of the civil war is linked to that. Thanks a million. Cause it's been a fantastic insight into a, the genesis of this project, the people involved, the people who've collaborated, you've collaborated with and have collaborated with you, particularly our producer. I mean, I have to say enormous kudos, uh, Kevin Brannigan, but also all the people who were involved um, getting the music together and uh, the, the individual historians and, and of course, yourself. It's, it's a really great project. And the visuals are important, I should say. A guy, Quivine McGee, yeah. did, did the, the, the logo, which, you know, yeah. matters in podcasts because that's what comes up on your phone and it's on nice the computer. It's striking. Yeah. yeah. And it's a great photograph. That's a photograph from the National Museum. Um, right. And it's of some members of the squad and Garota Sullivan, who was Adjutant General of the IRA, but wasn't in the squad. And they're actually, it's labeled 1920, but it's actually 1921. I think it's the truce. And I think they're going to the races because they're kind of all messed up. So it's quite a striking mm. image. Um, and um, some of the people we mentioned are in, are in that photograph, obviously. And they're going to the races. Yeah, and they did that quite a bit. I mean, I think um, there was a culture that they had themselves around their haunts in Dublin and, and going mm. to the races and stuff, which again, it irked other people within the Republican movement that they seemed to be this kind of group who, who had that kind of, you know, um, gang who, who also could enjoy themselves. They did have perks. Yeah. I mean, they were yeah. paid as well. And mm. that's not to say they were mercenaries at all, Yeah, yeah but sure. the squad were on tradesmen's wages, which again right. reflected the fact that that's, they were either tradesmen or a good few of them were white collar, a good few of them were clerks. And that's an interesting point. Whereas obviously the vast majority of IRA volunteers weren't, weren't paid. Yeah. That's an interesting point in and of itself. And of course, that would generate. These were full time staff. I suppose, again, we probably should have said this in the beginning. And yeah. they were full time GHQ staff and they, yeah. and they had their own arms dumps and they had their own source of information. And of course, they have an intelligence network that people like Charlie Dalton and, and Joe Dolan and then. You've got spies within the British apparatus like David Nelligan. Um, yeah. And therefore, they're a little bit apart from a, the general IRA structure. And I think mm. one thing that John Dorney and John Borganovo did well in the podcast was kind of explain mm. how that structure worked in, in, mm. in the War of Independence. Because I suppose most of us would have had the view at one point that if you're in the IRA in Dublin, the War of Independence, you're out every day shooting at British soldiers. But in actual fact, firstly, it takes a long time before they shoot up British soldiers, but also that actually for a, a long period, it's a small group within the IRA who are doing a lot of the armed activity. 
one of the things that came across was there were people obviously planted in each other's sides who were sending information back, which must have made life exceedingly difficult for them. Yeah, I mean, obviously, one of the factors in all the tension and the fear is that the British have spies and the British have sources of information within the Republican movement and also that the Republicans have infiltrated the British uh, bureaucracy and Dublin Castle and that that contributes, firstly, obviously, to the killing of of informers and spies and suspected spies. Mm. And it also then, I think, adds to that sense of hypertension that must have existed for if i mean if these guys were caught in 1921 mm. they'd, they'd have been executed mm. um so there's no doubt that they're under a huge amount of pressure yeah. um, and, and then that's replicated in a sense in the civil war i mean like you have people who are sending back this the case of the guy who was was his brother shot and he was seen as a spy inside the free state army and this is a re- reasonably high ranking free stater and Presuming that was functioning as well. There were people on both sides. Yeah, I mean, the IRA had spies even inside CID. And Mm -hmm. also the Free State obviously had lots of of contacts within and and informers within republicanism as well. Um, There's a lot less killing of of suspected informers in the Civil War than there was during the War of Independence. And I think it's more problematic for the anti-treaty IRA as well in terms of how the public view them. Um, one thing I would say, though, and again, it's just a, a footnote to the Collins story. Mm. On Bloody Sunday, Collins had a list of 40 or 50 people that he wanted shot in mm. terms of the what he thought was the British intelligence network in mm. Dublin. And ultimately, the cabinet, particularly Cahill Brewer, the Minister for Defence, vetoed that. And Brewer, who's often kind of presented as this kind of fanatic, said mm. there that the evidence doesn't exist to justify a lot of these killings. So you're not allowed to do them. So mm. there was political control over the IRA. That's interesting. And that control was exercised by somebody who, when it comes to the, the treaty and the civil war, is seen as a yeah. fanatic, while Collins is seen as a, a pragmatist. Yeah. The, listen, thanks a million, Brian. I mean, these are great. And it's it's... It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk about it as well. Thanks for your time. And we encourage listeners to listen to the podcast, um, which is available on Spotify. Um, If you just search for The Dirty Word in Dublin, if you want to hear Brian with slightly better production values than currently are. (laughs) So thanks very much, Brian. Thank you. Thank you.